0: Good
1: evening and welcome to
0: the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'd like to welcome a couple of my bosses who are here. General Scrowcroft and Ambassador Hills are here, and Mr. Hills as well. Uh, We also have uh, Admiral Keating is here. We're always happy to see Admiral Keating. And thank you all for coming out on this rainy evening. Um, I'd like to welcome you on, my name's Andrew Schwartz, I'm with CSIS. I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the Schieffer Series, on behalf of Texas Christian University and the Schieffer School of Journalism. I know that there's plenty of uh, students down there watching this online. Uh, go Horn Frogs, and thanks for tuning in. <laughs> um, th- we got a great program tonight, some of the best journalists in the world. And we'll, we'll lead it off with the man who's number one on Sunday, Bob Schieffer. Thank mm-hmm. you very
1: much. <laughs> Thank you all. <Thank> <laughs> well, on behalf of TCU and CSIS, uh, this ought to be uh, fun. We, uh, there is certainly no. Uh, lack of things to uh, talk about after the President's uh, uh, State of the Union last night. It it seemed to me that uh, the things we ought to be talking about today are uh, leaving Afghanistan, North Korea, impact of the sequester, Iran, Syria, cyber, and then uh, Israel. So uh, I want to start by uh, introducing uh, Margaret Warner, Uh, not Margaret Warner. (laughs) (laughs) We're going
2: to talk about this at the office tomorrow,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Margaret Brillen, who is our new State Department (laughs) correspondent at uh, CBS, and we are just couldn't be happier to have us (laughs) have her, and uh, now we're learning her name. (laughs) (laughs) The more we know about her, the more we like her. Margaret uh, has has had a very distinguished uh, uh, career. She used to work at Bloomberg. Before that, she worked at CNBC. She is a Whitehead Fellow uh, with the Foreign Policy Association, member of the Economic Club uh, of New York. She anchored live uh, in uh, Cairo uh, during uh, the Hosni uh, Mabarak's uh, stepping down. Uh, she's interviewed everybody you ever heard of. And Margaret, <laughs> we're, we're really gra- glad to have you. Uh, right here, my old friend uh, Jerry Seib. He's the Washington bureau chief, as everybody knows, of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, had a very distinguished career we've covered a lot of stories together over the years uh, he won the uh... part of the team that won the two thousand one pulitzer in the breaking news category for the coverage of 9/11, and that was one of the most remarkable stories in all of journalism uh, they got together and decided that what the country needed was a newspaper yeah. and they figured out how to put out a newspaper even though their whole plant had been shut down and they did and it looked just like the Wall Street Journal and it was one of the most complete accounts of what happened that day just a remarkable thing and then Tom Friedman uh, who probably uh, has anybody won more Pulitzers than you have Tom Uh, if they have I don't know they who they are (laughs) three of them uh, still wrote what I think is the definitive book uh, on the Middle East and still my favorite book of uh, of all and that is uh, from Beirut to Jerusalem he also uh, is the uh, author of uh, uh, The World is Flat, which was the basis of a hit song that I wrote uh, <laughs> <laughs> called Flat, Hot, and Crowded. <laughs> I thought he took the
3: title from you. It was the <laughs> other way around? I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember quite how that worked. We both, we both did well on that,
1: so uh, we're, we're glad to have Tom. Uh, Margaret, uh, John Kerry's been there, what, a week? Week or so,
2: a week and a half. Or uh, so.
1: Just tell us, uh, is it different? What what's it like? What what are your first impressions of the new Secretary of State?
2: Uh, well, it is week two for him, and um, he did give us all Red Sox caps in the diplomatic press corps, so that was our uh, introduction to, to Secretary Kerry. Um, we've had a few press availabilities from him so far. It's not clear if Senator Kerry's views as uh, head of foreign relations committee will be able to be implemented as Secretary of State in the Obama administration, um, particularly in regard to policies in Syria and the like, where he had previously advocated being a little bit more engaged than we are. Um, that is to say, engaged. And it's it's interesting. I, I can't wait to go on the road with him when he makes that first trip around the world uh, and starts to go out and shake hands. He's made very public, his desire to engage particularly in the Middle East, that will be different than Secretary Clinton, who made a very public move by saying, I'm going to Asia first, the pivot towards Asia being the emphasis there. Um, I think the U.S. is recognized even when it tries to focus elsewhere, the Middle East is going to call us back for attention. So So do you
1: think that will be his first trip, or do you have any idea? They haven't
2: announced it yet, but there is good indication that he wants to very much be engaged, and obviously President Obama is going to Israel in March, so there is some legwork and some groundwork to be done in the Middle East.
1: Uh, Tom, you, uh, you heard the President State of the Union uh, last night, not, not a lot of foreign policy in it, but there never is generally in a State of the Union speech. He did announce that uh, uh, we're cutting the force in half in Afghanistan this year. Uh, he also said... Uh, this will signal that uh, our war in Afghanistan is over. We may be leaving, but I'm not sure I would agree that the war in Afghanistan is over. What, what's your take on uh, how the strategy seems to be uh, shaping up in Afghanistan
0: right now? Well, it reminds me of an old saying, you know, from uh, um, Trotsky. Uh, you may not be interested in afghanistan but afghanistan is interested in you <laughs> okay um we we've learned that lesson what trotsky said about revolution um you know we're, we are going to draw down there bob i think it's um uh wise and and morally uh responsible uh, that we don't just walk away we don't go to zero i think um over time, Afghanistan will gradually evolve into an even more de facto partition um, between the sort of northern alliance led by the Tajiks and um, uh, the, the Pashtuns in in their regions, and Iran having enormous influence over the third largest city, Herat. And um, I think the best we can hope for is a kind of balance with that de facto partition and uh, some kind of government in the center in Kabul that you know can hold on to its head, maintain the military, and um, give us the space to do what we need to do um, to, to uh, beat back whatever, whatever threats emerge there. I, I would say that's the best scenario. Whether that will, will hold up, um, you know, I, I don't know. But I, I think that um, you know, we've done uh, all we could in terms of the original policy of trying to build Afghanistan into something uh, that it's not. I think there's a recognition we've probably gotten as far as we can, and let's hope a de facto partition, you know, can, um, can keep it reasonably stable.
1: Uh, Jerry, do you think that uh, Afghanistan will no longer pose a threat in the sense that it'll no longer be a haven uh, for those that uh, wish us ill, or as long as these people can uh, find a place to... Uh, as it were uh, in Pakistan, does it really make that much difference?
3: Well, you know, I think it makes a difference in the long run. I think in the short run, um, the, the, the focus has shifted elsewhere, Pakistan, but North Africa. I mean, the focus on North Africa in the next couple of years, I suspect, will be pretty intense. Um, yeah, I, I think it's um, basically the failed state phenomenon. You pick a failed state, you have your hot spot. If Afghanistan turns into a failed state, round two or round three or however many are on that list, uh, yeah, it becomes a problem. Pakistan, I think, is in a slightly different category. Um, it's There are no good solutions in Pakistan. I think in terms of the threat that drew the U.S. into Afghanistan now, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of attention on other spots, Yemen, uh, Somalia, elsewhere in North Africa. But I think you, if, to answer your question about Afghanistan, I think you have to f- figure out whether Afghanistan turns back into a failed state, and I don't know what the odds are, but yeah, 50-50 proposition, maybe. Um, I thought it was interesting that the the president decided, you know, as you suggested, Margaret, to go to the Middle East early in a second term. I mean, he's now, he's buying into something he avoided for four years, which is the Palestinian issue. That's not the only reason he's going. He's going because he wants to talk about, um, he wants to talk to the Israeli people about what his vision of peace in the Middle East is. He wants to talk about the ripple effects from the Arab Spring, and he wants to talk about uh, the threat from Iran on his terms, directly to people in, in the state of Israel and beyond. And, uh, you know, once you do that, Uh, And Tom, you know this better than I. Once you do that as an American president, you've bought into um, a a four-year process. And that's beginning, I think, in March.
0: Yeah, I think just to pick up on Jerry's point, you know, I think that, I think, and and Margaret's point, I think Secretary Kerry uh, wants to be much more active uh, in Middle East diplomacy than um, uh, Secretary Clinton was. I think he understood the fact that uh, President Obama had not gone to Israel was uh, an impediment for um, it was just going to be something out there that they had to get out of the way. I don't think President Obama has anywhere near the high hopes um, for progress that, uh, that Kerry has. But I think he's sort of bought onto the idea If new Secretary of State, a lot of energy. Let me get out of the way. Let me get myself out of this story, lay the broad framework. If Kerry is successful, you know, then I can come in and, and try to push whatever rock needs to get over the top. But I, I, don't, I don't see him himself jumping in. I think they're going to let Kerry have a little running room here, see what he does. But well, um,
1: let me just ask, all three of you why why was there such a kind of bad relationship, as it were, between uh, Netanyahu and, and, and President Obama? Uh, is that is there something there we don't know about? Uh, what what what's your sense of it, Margaret? You were there with uh, Secretary Clinton,
2: right? She had a very direct line into. Prime Minister Netanyahu and made that clear that she spoke to him very directly. I don't know if Secretary Kerry steps into that as the Netanyahu whisperer that she was in that way. Um, But, you know, whether there was one incident or whether there was the perception that uh, President Obama wanted to perhaps not be uh, as unquestioning in support of Israeli policy, had questioned the expansion of settlements, et cetera, um, that set off on the wrong foot or perceived wrong foot but I think one thing that we keep coming back to is we often think of the conflict there in these like 90s terms that it's negotiation between Israelis and Palestinians or the Palestinian Authority and Israelis at this point the Palestinians aren't even talking to themselves in terms of that divide between the PA and Fatah and Hamas and the Gaza Strip so in some ways engaging there isn't negotiating a peace settlement it's just getting any engagement because there is such a divide within the Palestinian uh, territories. I mean Gaza and the West Bank are functioning almost completely separately and in Congress you've got about 500 million dollars still sitting there locked up that the US hasn't been able to deliver there. You have a Palestinian Authority on the verge of financial collapse um, and so it's, a, it's not this going and there will be peace. It's just getting something happening in terms of uh, pushing someone willing to engage with the Israeli uh, political system. But what about front. this
1: this relationship, Tom, between Netanyahu? and well, I'd, I'd say and a couple of things Obama.
0: about uh, the relationship. You know, one is I'm I, I, just making this up. I have a feeling there was some guy on the Harvard Law Review with Obama that Bibi reminds Obama of, and. <laughs> They didn't have a good <laughs> relationship, and um, there's just something chemical there. That, uh, there's just some guy from Westchester who just, you know. Uh, uh, so you know, I think that's part of it. And and you know, you know, Obama is not the first president who who has been irritated by Bibi Netanyahu, no. who um, considers himself almost a member of the. Republican caucus in the U.S. Congress that can be very annoying. What well, do you a think? He, sense, he just you know. wanted. Do you think he um, wanted
1: Romney to be elected, and that's oh, what yeah, part Oh yeah, no, of this no question about really? it.
0: Really? There's no, no question about that. Um, uh, but I, I think there's a larger point. Uh, Margaret alluded to it. Um, this isn't. This isn't 1980. It's not 1990. You know, I have a theory about secretaries of state when it comes to the Middle East, and. Um, there are basically two kind of secretaries of state. There are those who want their forest in Israel named after them now, and those who want it later. Okay, And um, uh, there are three sort of American statesmen who do not have a Bush named after them in Israel. Okay, And they are Jimmy Carter, uh, Jimmy Baker slash George H.W. Bush, um, and um, Henry Kissinger. And the historical scorecard is Kissinger, 1973 uh, disengagement agreements, Baker and Bush, Madrid Peace Conference, um, uh, Carter. Carter, Camp David, all the others, <clears throat> zero. So you've got to really decide. If you want to play in the Middle East. this is a hockey game, um, and don't come and think we're going to play here at touch football. And so if you're ready to really play hockey, if you are listed on the Prime Minister of Israel's daily diary as downtime as Secretary of State. Um, <laughs> that's not a good sign, OK? Um, and so you've got to start by taking their hand, put it on the table, take a hammer out, smash, break every bone in their hand. And they've got their attention. By the way, it applies to the Arab leaders as well, and the Palestinians. But if they think they can just sort of relax around you, you're done. Um, and they can smell that from a 100 paces.
3: Well, look, I, I don't think there is, um, uh, I don't know about the hammer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Ice pick, maybe. But um, (laughs) look, I I don't think there are illusions over there at the White House about what where this is going to lead. We're not we're not in the 1990s. We're not in the 1980s. We're not talking comprehensive settlement here. There's not even a Palestinian negotiating party. But we are talking about a, a Middle East that is undergoing enormous change, in which failure to engage on every level diplomatically, and that includes with the Palestinian the Palestinians carries its own risks. And there are new parties being empowered all over the region right now. And to the extent that's happening in a place like Egypt, and who knows what's going to happen to Morsi in the long run. But there's a power change. There's going to be an Islamist force in just about every one of these countries. To, to, to have credibility with that Islamist force, you have, to, you have to punch some boxes. One of the boxes you have to punch is we're taking the Palestinian question seriously. Does that mean you've got to have a Camp David by the third year of the second Obama term? No, and that's not realistic. But I don't think that's what this is about. This is about saying we are engaged with the new Middle East. and. The the president's already engaged with Morsi. You saw that at the end of the year when there was a problem in Gaza and he worked constructively with him. Fine. Check that box. But you've got to be engaged on every level and build some credibility. I think that's what this is about. This is about building credibility in the second Obama term with the Islamic world and, by the way, not talking to the Israeli people through the filter of Prime Minister Netanyahu, doing it yourself as the secretary of state and as the president.
1: Margaret, one of the interesting things that uh, came out, I guess, last week on Capitol Hill or was we learned that uh, both Secretary uh, Clinton and I guess uh, Mr. Gates wanted to, uh, and later Panetta, I guess, wanted mm-hmm. to, uh, to arm the Syrian rebels.
2: And Petraeus and, and General, General Petraeus
1: And Petraeus uh, and General Dempsey. And, uh, and they got the outvoted one to five. They got, <laughs> they got outvoted. Do you see that changing? Uh, do you think uh, Secretary uh, Kerry will have a different idea about that?
2: He can have a different idea. Whether there'll be a different outcome, um, I, I don't. I don't believe so. Um, I think, and he had in his previous role as senator, been advocated more involvement. Mm-hmm. There are a few options that are being explored and being pushed, particularly by the Syrian opposition ter- through back channels, in terms of new versions of providing support. Um, and uh, I think David Ignatius wrote about one of those ideas in his column uh, earlier this week, which was this idea of helping you know picking some generals and picking some um, folks who are in camps in Turkey and bringing them in and training them to go in as sort of our version of the the perfect soldier that doesn't mean dumping arms in the opposition hands Uh, I don't think that engagement ever happens but you know now you've got a Syrian opposition council that's trying to open offices diplomatically here in Washington New York, you're going to have more of a presence. You're going to have the opposition head come here to Washington in the next few months as well. So something more will happen in Syria, but I don't see that happening with military support um, unless you have some real extreme measure that gets caught on camera and makes it absolutely impossible to deny. But I don't see the odds of that.
1: What do you fellows think?
0: Well, uh, my view on Syria is you cannot have an intelligent conversation about Syria unless you talk about its twin, which is Iraq. Mm. Um, Iraq and Syria are twins. Both borders, you know, carved out by the British and French. Um, one had a Sunni minority ruling over Shiite majority with Kurds, Turks, and Christian Turkmen and Christians around. The other has a, Al- a Shiite majority ruling over Sunni uh, Shiite minority ruling over Sunni majority with Kurds, Christians, and Tur- they are twins. And one of the tragedies to me, among many tragedies about about Iraq is we've actually never had a conversation about what happened there, and why it happened, and what we should learn from it.
2: It's a dirty
0: word. So it's a dirty word. It's almost against the law to talk about. So we've expended all this time, energy, money, lives, most importantly, ours, Iraqis, and others, on something we have never discussed. then people come along and say, well, let's do this on Syria. So what happened in Iraq? Well, in my view, what happened, Iraq was like a grenade. Saddam was the pin, and we pulled the pin. And then we did the geopolitical equivalent of falling on a grenade. As a country, we, we, we fell on Iraq, and we absorbed the whole blast. Now, because we fell on that grenade and absorbed the whole blast, Iraq never spread. Didn't spread to Syria, didn't spread to Iran, didn't spread to Turkey, didn't spread to Kuwait, didn't spread to Saudi Arabia, didn't spread to Jordan. Because we took the whole blast. Then we sponsored or hosted a civil war which was inevitable because we took a hundred-year-old power structure and turned it upside down. All the parties were going to test each other. What you got? What you got? What you got? That took about three years while they tested each other and exhausted each other. Then we did the most remarkable thing, I would argue, in modern Middle East history. We helped them organize the first social contract between the constituent elements of an Arab country of how they would share power without an iron fist. Then we helped them through three elections. First election, they elected uh, sectarian parties jafar remember second election sectarian parties third election in 2010 remarkable iraqis demanded multi sectarian parties and both alawi and maliki ran on multi sectarian lists alawi won by one vote and we sided with maliki because we basically wanted to get out right when this thing was actually coming to a point where you know one could imagine actually working with it Now, while we did that, we we worked on the elections from 8 in the morning till midnight. From midnight till 8 in the morning, Stan McChrystal and the boys basically dealt with the dark side, took on the jihadists in both the Shiite and the Sunni communities so the center could actually come together in a relaxed way. So I would argue, if you think that through, Iraq today, in my view, has a 1 in 10, and it's getting toward 1 in 20 chance of a decent outcome. But my view, the only reason it has gone the course it went is because we were there. In a country with no Mandela, we were the midwife. Either you got a Mandela or a midwife, but if you don't have both, you have Syria. So what's going on in Syria? The people are trying to pull the pin. They got about halfway out, enough to you know blow up half the country, but there's nobody to fall on the grenade. Mm-hmm. There's no midwife, and there ain't no Mandela. Mm-hmm. And so when I hear people, a lot of people who are against the Iraq, by the way, because of George Bush and, you know, saying, well, we must do something on Syria. I say, really? Will the ends, will the means. Mm-hmm. Okay, If you don't have a power that controls the space in a multi-sectarian society that breaks down into civil war where nobody trusts the other, a no-fly zone, well, I, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Libya. Okay, um, A humanitarian corridor, good luck. And so I'm not actually advocating we go in there at all. I'm just saying. Could we have a serious conversation about this? Okay, we're talking about a multi-sectarian society that is broken apart, and without a third party to sit between the sides now and midwife them as we did in Iraq, I think, well I've said for the last two years, Libya implodes, Egypt implodes, Yemen implodes, Tunisia implodes, Syria explodes. explodes. It goes out. Yeah. And without anybody to fall on the grenade, that's what it's going to do. It's the problem from hell.
1: So what what should we do right now? I, I, that's a fascinating uh, uh, thing that you just said, the statement. Uh, but uh, do we just watch now, or and talk about it? Or these it, or are the it,
0: reasons why. Bob. I think the being Secretary of State today, and Jerry has alluded to, is the worst job in the world. <laughs> um, because, you know, if you're lucky, you get to talk to Putin and the Chinese, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, they at least answer the phone. And, Lavrov um, hasn't and been, not been able to get yeah, Lavrov on the real, phone there you go. <laughs> And, um, <laughs> and on other days, you get to deal with Mali and Afghanistan and Syria. No, you know, a, you Jerry, know well, uh, look, I mean,
3: I'll violate a journalistic confidence here. You know, I remembered very distinctly sitting in General Scowcroft's office <laughs> uh, over in the White House just before the move into Kuwait. And you tell me then, and I'll disclose it now because the statute of limitations has passed, we're not going to go into Iraq. If we go into Iraq, we break it, we own it. I think that lesson, you had a point. Let's just put it that way. You go into Iraq, you break it, you own it. I don't think these, this, this administration wants to go into Syria, to, it's already broken, but you go in, you own it. You're, United States, you go in, you own it. So where does that lead you? What are your options? Well, okay, you can give some arms. but. There's no shortage of guns right now. As I've n- my impression, no shortage of, of weapons in Syria right now anyway. Are you going to determine-are you going determine, to tip the balance with some arms? Well. Probably not. Not unless you're going to go much bigger than anybody's talking about. So if you're not going to tip the balance, you're going to go in and fail to tip the balance, you're going to look ineffective. So then, you've, then you're in a failure. Then you're mo- that moving down toward a foreign policy failure. So then you have to fix your failure by, by prevailing. Well, So then you've got to go in bigger. And I agree with Tom. I mean, once you're, to me, once you're in Syria, it's a 10-year proposition. I mean, that's it's everything Iraq was, and they really, but they really do have chemical weapons yeah. and probably biological weapons. And they're going to go God knows where. Um, And the sectarian hatred has had even more time to bubble up over the last two years. So I'm not saying that's an argument against intervention. I mean, that's not for somebody like me to decide. I'm just saying if you think this is an easy call, you've not thought it through. And I totally agree with Tom on that.
2: No, and Secretary Kerry today was uh, speaking with the Jordanian foreign minister. And the two of them both repeated the same phrase, which, oh, you can't put a time frame on this. You can't put a timeline on this. Well, we're coming up on two years in March in terms of the Syrian uprising. And you know it, it has spread, as you said. Um, but it was interesting to hear the Secretary allude to this as yet unannounced trip that he will be making, saying his focus will be on changing the calculus of Bashar al-Assad. Changing the calculus was the phrase multiple times. What does that actually mean? Um, the focus has been with Lakhdar Rahimi, the UN envoy, and trying to engage the Russians that there would be at some point in the future Bashar al-Assad so cornered that he would engage in some way and actually think of an exit plan. It seems like our focus right now diplomatically will be on crafting some version of that. The Secretary also announced King Abdullah of Jordan is going to Moscow. Does he become the emissary for this? And does anyone actually bite? Because the Russians so far certainly have not. If they are the closest thing to an advocate um, for the Syrians, or at least an outlet to Bashar al-Assad, it doesn't appear that diplomatically that sort of engagement, diplomacy, it doesn't appear to be going anywhere fast.
1: Can Let's can talk you about North Korea. Do you have something? I was there? just going to make, a, yeah, make go a,
3: a brief point, because I'm having a you know, Marco Rubio- <laughs> <laughs>
1: what,
3: what both of you said reminded me of, reminded me of something, but it's very fashionable today, by the way. <laughs> Everybody in town is doing it, if you haven't noticed. Um, Hydrate. So I lived in, in, in Egypt for a few years, um, and there was, I thought when I lived there naively that um, President Mubarak would actually do the right thing. He would appoint a vice president. He would find a path to having a stable, peaceful transition to a new government. He would create a model for other Arab leaders. That, obviously, that was totally wrong, which is why you shouldn't go back and read your clips too much um, if you're a journalist. <laughs> but um, I think, and uh, this goes to a point was making. I think right now, precedents are being set. Models are being built in the Middle East. And somebody has to con- construct a con- the constructive model of how this transition will happen in a peaceful way and in a way that is, is not uh, uh, creating uh, governments that are attempted to be built along sectarian lines, all that sort of thing. There need to be models in the Arab world uh, that will show people that this can be done sanely. And right now, I just don't think there are any.
0: And I would just pick up on that as one of the reasons I've argued, um, what, why Israel has an interest today in peace with the Palestinians is not simply to resolve that issue and all the demographics. It's that with the Palestinians, you have a secular community, multi-sectarian, Christians, Muslims. Um, and if somehow, and this is would be a huge project, but if you could actually get a Progressive, modernizing, multi-sectarian model in the West Bank that would stand every day as the refutation of what's going on in Gaza, let alone elsewhere in the region. It would have a huge, yeah. you know, one good one good example is worth a thousand theories. And Jerry's so right, you know, they right now. You look how East Asia developed. You know, Taiwan followed Japan, Korea followed Taiwan. You know, I mean, they had good models to follow. How did Eastern Europe do after the end of the Cold War? They had the European Union to follow. You know these guys have no successful model except Turkey, which is a non-Arab country, and they got their own history with the Turks. So I, I just think it's a, it's a real challenge.
1: Let's uh, let's talk about North Korea. I think we have to in the, in the nuclear situation. So, what's changed? Uh, what happened here? Uh, is it a more dangerous world than it was last week? Uh, now that they apparently exploded a nuclear device.
0: You know I. I think if you talk to senior administration officials, um they will they will tell you North Korea had a nuclear weapon before this administration and they've got one now. You know, I mean um the the latest Kim Jong un, you know, clearly trying to prove himself to his generals and his uncles or whatever, I think they would tell you. And lastly they tell you that these guys are batshit crazy, you know. <laughs> and um uh and so um, there's no telling what what they'll do, and and, how, and I don't again, I don't en- envy anyone to deal with them. But the only people I think who can effectively deal with are the Chinese. And when, when they turn off the lights and the potatoes, that's when you get their attention. Until and unless that happens, we're sanctioned out.
3: Yeah, I, I don't I don't think a test in and of itself makes the world more dangerous, in the sense that they haven't proven anything to anybody that that wasn't known before what you don't know is how much proving internally still has to go on between the the new young guy and the old guys who are looking over their shoulder or looking over his shoulder wondering how he's going to do i don't think you can make judgments about north korea until you think the transition is complete and my guess and i'm no north korea expert by a long shot but my guess is if you ask somebody who knows a lot about the country they'll tell you i think this is a transition still underway not complete
2: the thing that is different is all the rest of the transition you have a new administration coming in in South yeah. Korea. You've got, uh, you're got, you in the midst of a transition in China that should be complete by March. Um, and you've got a new Japanese Prime Minister in there as well. So there, there are some new pieces to the puzzle there. Um, it's gonna be really interesting to see how, as you said, the Chinese deal with this. I mean, we've relied on them as having the most influence if anyone has right. influence, but that was pretty defiant. Um, move to do that against Chinese wishes. Are you sanctioned out? I mean, I think this is interesting in terms of playing out the theory, right? If this is about sending a message in regard to non-proliferation, well, it, you think Iran's not sitting there watching what's happening? That's gonna be the more dangerous element. Is, is the precedent you set, I mean, what? Is China going to go and hurt its own financial institutions by totally cutting off financial ties to North Korea? No. Do they want an imploded North Korean state at their border? No, that's dangerous. So it's sort of like the devil you know, they'll keep him alive, they'll keep him going in North Korea. The degree to which they you know, backhand him is what we're waiting to see. But it's going to be interesting for the Iran question, how North Korea plays out at the Security Council, I think, and that question of just the technology development. I mean, does this not show that sanctions well, they may isolate you, but they don't stop you from building weapons and the ability to launch them.
0: If you're North Korea. If you're, if you're North Korea. Yeah.
2: But we're not even talking about Iran getting to the level that North Korea is currently at, yeah. and the level of, of concern is higher there. Tom, let me just well, say, so, so
1: just because I don't know. Uh, what is the North Korean capability to deliver? A, a nuclear weapon? I mean, what is their, did they have a missile delivery system? That
0: not that they can reach us. Yeah, <laughs> not not reliably. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. you know, um, certainly can reach Tokyo, though. Yeah, uh, or, you know, or, or South or, Korea. Or, uh, or, let alone South Korea. Yeah. No, you know, listening to, to Margaret, you know, make that point, I, and going back to the Middle East for a second and being Secretary of State now, there's so many people, uh, um, uh, if you were Secretary of State, it seems to me, that you'd want to just sit down and ask, where, where does this go? Okay, I mean, like you'd really like to sit down with, with Morsi right now in Egypt and say, look, I, I've been watching what you're doing. Tell me how this ends well for you. You want to ask Netanyahu, like I, I get all the threats around you, but tell me how this ends well. You know, you want to ask the Iranian leadership, like how's this going to work? Bashar, like, what you think you're going to, that you're you're not going to end up in the Hague? I mean, what is your what is your game plan here? And and the North Koreans. I think we're, we've got a world right now where so many people are behaving in ways that I understand it in terms of their own immediate logic, but you, you really sort of wonder, what is their end game here?
1: Talk a little bit about uh, Iran and, and their nuclear weapon development. I mean, we're telling them they can't have a nuclear weapon. We know the North Koreans have one. Uh, the points that Margaret was making, Jerry?
3: Well, look, I mean, I guess the, the first thing... To state the obvious, they're moving ahead. I think the question is, wh- where is the red line out there? I don't think, the, the only thing we know is that the Israelis have one red line and the Americans have another. I'm uncertain at this point where the Israeli red line is, because if you listen to BB two years ago, the Iranians have long since crossed that red line, and so he's moved the red line forward a little bit. I don't know where the Iranian red line is. The one thing you know for sure is that they're moving closer to that red line, um, and they're moving closer to the American red line. But the American red line is pretty clearly defined as weaponization. So, I I don't I don't know how this is going to turn out. And again, it, it, do you have a way that the, that this doesn't turn out badly? I I don't know. But I can construct in my mind a scenario in which there's a muddle through. Um, there's a muddle through process here in which we get through this year, next year, maybe for a while in which nothing ever really happens except everybody worries a lot. Because maybe the sanctions have been effective enough, and they have been effective on on the Iranians, that they say, well, well, look, we we really don't want to live under this kind of uh, situation for a long term. At some point, we will have proven our point. Everybody knows we have nuclear weapons capacity. That's good enough for now. Why do we want to cross the Americans' red line? The, the Israeli red line doesn't matter to us so much anymore because we know they don't have the military c- capacity to really take out our nuclear program, and they know it too. So the only people we have to worry about are the Americans. So we'll stop short of the American red line, which has been defined as something we don't think we need anyway, which is a weapon, and we'll all just sort of sit around and kind of mull this over for a while, and then we'll talk about a way to get some of the sanctions lifted. I mean, I'm not predicting that, but I can see a muddle-through scenario here um, in which everybody is unhappy uh, uh, for the next five years, but nobody ever has to actually do anything dramatic about it. That's at least a possibility, I think.
1: I want to uh, go to the audience for questions. While you're thinking of a okay. question and we have microphones, let me just uh, turn to Margaret and, and talk about the, uh, quote, uh, pivot uh, to, to Asia and, and, and what's going on on that front. How concerned are officials at the State Department that China and and Japan it may come to a, to a real showdown over some of those rocks out there in oh. the Pacific and what, in fact, would the United States do? If <laughs> they Don't did
2: even come say to their that. name because that's taking a position on okay. those, those <laughs> islands there, right? Yeah. Um, well, there is a concern about rocks, is in, what I call <laughs> them. Exactly. Yeah, Increasing militarized yeah. situation in Asia. You know, North Korea is just a piece of that. You've got the, the the, you had a lock-on incident um, about two weeks ago. You had some, some noise about that in terms of um, some Japanese and Chinese ships uh, and tension uh, there. But, I mean, you have the, the Japanese uh, delegation coming to the U.S. next week to meet with President Obama. We'll hear a little bit about that. I, it, it's tension, but whether that plays out to conflict is unclear right now. I mean, the true economic interest in doing that is, is pretty low. Um, so it, it's going to continue to be an issue, but uh, I think it's it's not necessarily uh, on the front page.
1: All right, questions here 's one right here. Uh, here comes the mic, got a mic. Hi, Liz Colton. Um, we've talked about a lot of places and we've talked about the pivot to Asia, but we're also back in North Africa and al Qaeda, which was supposed to have been finished, so I'd like to hear what you all. Um, have to say about the situation in mali and all across north africa with al-qaeda excellent yeah. question tom would we'll just go around here
0: um yeah i mean these you know it's now not al-qaeda central the way it was but it's al-qaeda of north africa al-qaeda of mali and um you know this is the franchise um uh operations and you know i think it, it's going to be a challenge um for all, all of these governments you know I'm I'm a big believer that um, I always watch the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Because I think the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is, to the wider war of civilizations what off-Broadway is to Broadway. So if you actually study the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in miniature, you can see a lot of things. So what do you see today? What you see today is Israel's like a Petri dish. So Israel is now surrounded on four out of five borders. By non state actors armed with missiles nested among civilians in the Sinai, Gaza, South Lebanon, Syria. Sunni extremists, all. Yeah, all of them. And only Jordan is, a, is, a, is what we would call a conventional border today. And um, so, what's going on there in miniature is what we're struggling with on Broadway with our whole drone policy. So, how do you manage a world now where not? Just these little pl- but big states, basically, like Mali. If you look at the map, I don't have to tell you is how big Mali is. Um, Somalia, uh, Libya, um, Syria, Afghanistan, where we have big now ungoverned areas with non-state actors armed now with increasingly sophisticated weapons nested among civilians. So I think what's going on off-Broadway now is coming to Broadway. And our drone debate is the front end of what is going to be a very complicated um, and, and difficult, I think, strategic challenge for us as we figure out how to, how to manage um, uh, in this new world.
1: Gary, you want to add in? I mean, I would like to just know, I'd like to get your feeling. Uh, what about the, the threat of terrorism worldwide? I mean, President last night was talking about uh, Al-Qaeda is, all but destroyed but uh, that to me that doesn't say that the threat of terrorism no longer exists it, are are we better off now than we were uh, I just want to
0: say one thing that's yeah. the only line in his speech that I cringed at yeah because I would never say that about anything regarding those guys yeah you know yeah. I, I just that's such no an it's true until, invitation. until it's not true. exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. Mean, it's just an imitation <laughs> yeah. Almost, yeah. Isn't it?
3: yeah i mean you know it, I, I, they only have to be right one time out of 100, as everybody knows, so I, I don't know. Look, I think, I th- we, well, this is what I think, not what I know. What I think is that, and I would, by the way, Liz, add Nigeria to your list of mm-hmm. countries to worry about. Um, it's not, a, it's not a, 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 a a, governless place, but it's a pretty important place, more important than the other ones, and it's got a problem. Um, I think it's, it's possible that the threat of al-Qaeda in, in the Maghreb is overrated right now. But I don't think the potential problem is over, overrated. I think it has a lot to do with how it's dealt with in the next four or five years. Does you know, drone strategy deal with it sufficiently? I don't know. But I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a potential problem. I think it's easy uh, right now to probably overstate its immediate uh, um, uh, threat. But the potential is really kind of frightening.
2: Well, part of that is the debate about how you define threat. Is it threat to the homeland? Or is it threat against Western interests right. more broadly? Because I don't
3: think the ability to project from the Maghreb is it really AQAM proven. AQAM
2: hasn't really done that. But theoretically, that's yeah. what the French said. They were concerned about, you know, AQ, right over the Mediterranean there. Um, I've, heard, I've heard the theory, and I've heard the prediction that basically on the policy front, it will mean just generally an expansion of AFRICOM. Um, and it will—it has highlighted, as General Dempsey said, some gaps in intelligence uh, there in that part of the world, in particular. Um, but how do you define a threat by Al Qaeda? Is it, you know, a hostage situation like we saw in Algeria? Is it uh, what we saw happen in the U.S. mission in Benghazi? Do, do you put that in the same category as the threat that we uh, determined there to be from Al Qaeda? in the uh, purest forms, you could say, at that point. So it, it's not clear that we're going to get any more involved. I think you're right on the drone front. But on the intelligence front, you're going to have to, in, uh, in terms of av- allocating resources, you're going to have to see that on the US front.
1: Let me just uh, inject a question of my own, because I meant to bring this up earlier, and I just forgot. And that is the the impact of the sequester. I hate this word, the sequester, <laughs> but the, these draconian cuts uh, in in. Programs across the board that are going into effect unless the Congress finds some way out of it. I mean, my sense of it is that the sequester is going to happen. That and, and simply because I, observing this Congress over the last few years, uh, it's it's my observation that there are times even when the Congress wants to do certain things, they still can't figure out how to do it because the the divide is so great right now. I, I think. I mean, it's just my my, my thought. I think it's going to happen, and then after it happens, I think they'll figure out something to either kick it further down the road or do something of significance. But that's, what do you think will be the impact of that, uh, Tom,
0: if it it does happen? Some way, somehow, um, we have to pay for the terrible twos, which was the first decade of the 21st century. Um, where we, we blew it out, you know? Two wars uh, not paid for with tax uh, increases, um, an unfunded you know, Medicare prescription drug, um, and then post-2008 um, salving our wounds from the Great Recession. We, we blew it out. And um, sooner or later, it's gonna either mean less Medicare, less Social Security, you know, fewer FAA you know, employees or a smaller military budget or a lot of inflation um, and, uh, uh, and, and having to do it that way. And what we're seeing here is, is to me, our two party system incapable sort of of managing that transition. And so now we're left with sequesters. And when you're left with a sequester, it means you're doing things suboptimally. You know, you're not thinking long term what world am I in, what are my priorities, whatnot. And we keep doing things suboptimally with no due diligence, you know, at the last minute. Well, how long do we remain a great power when everything you do is suboptimal with no due diligence?
1: I I think that's that's a very good point.
0: Let's go to more questions right here. All right.
3: Thank you. I'm Jay Kansara from the Hindu American Foundation, and I wanted to ask, uh, what do you feel Secretary Kerry and President Obama's policy towards Kashmir is going to be, given the recent skirmish on the India-Pakistan line of control? And also, how can the United States continue to engage with Pakistan when you have somebody like Muhammad Hafiz Saeed openly you know, living with a $10 million bounty on their head when they have been, when it's clear that their connection to terrorist
1: activities, such as the Mumbai attacks in 2008, are, are apparent? Margaret, do you want to draw that?
2: Um, you know, I wish I could say that I, I knew what the policy was going to be. I haven't quite heard it. I haven't really heard it. <laughs> period. Um, I do know today, Secretary Kerry did speak to Zardari. There was a phone call today about, you know, mutual concerns about terrorism. Um, but Pakistan, I think, in particular, um, remains—it remains a tinderbox. It's like. Two of the countries that were definitely left off the list of being mentioned in the State of the Union, Pakistan and Iraq. It was just, there's no upside to talking about it because there's no clear um, view on how it plays out. I I honestly don't know the answer to the Kashmir question, um, to tell you the truth. But uh, I, I don't think that anything dramatic changes in the near term. I think it'll be hold your nose, pay your money in aid, and try to collaborate on terrorism. I do think, the theory that's been articulated so far is that you know Pakistan will s- pick up some of the slack that we leave off with the drawdown in Afghanistan, that we want them to be more engaged in terms of taking regional responsibility. That's the, the model that the Obama administration has said it wants to see in other regions of the world as well.
1: Another question? Back there.
0: Hi, my name is Ian Schwab. I work with American Jewish World Service. Um, I wanted to turn uh, south of the border, if we may, as we often don't, um, and ask a question about Haiti. Um, I was curious with the departure of Secretary Clinton and the longstanding um, Clinton um, relationship in Haiti, if you thought that there would be major changes in regards to the U.S. involvement in Haiti, and whether or not um, the issue of the U.N. and the introduction of cholera into Haiti, which you know has killed almost 8,000 people already, would it lead to any common cause between the administration and maybe some um, Republicans in Congress. Thanks.
1: Who'd like to take that? This is something I have I'm, I'm not totally bunch, yeah, I'm <laughs> well, <laughs> unqualified to I'll, talk
3: about. I'll, I'll say two things. One is I actually think Secretary Clinton established, and I'd be curious if you agree with this, a pattern that you now can't just drop. That, in other words, there are new items on the foreign policy agenda, uh, you know, uh, women's rights uh, cholera erad- eradication, uh, paying attention to countries like Myanmar that hadn't been paid attention to previously. I, I don't think you can walk away from those things. So I don't know what that means in programmatic terms, but I think there's a, you know, precedents matter. We've been talking about it. I think that precedent matters. Um, I would just say one other thing that's tangentially related that occurred to me this morning. You know, there's going to be two other big, well, there's, there's certainly going to be one transition in Latin America that nobody's talking about, which is I think Hugo Chavez will die someday, <laughs> and you could have um, one or more Guys named Castro die in Cuba in the next couple what years. What about and, him? Do think right. And what does that I mean, mean? I mean, I don't know. No. Does what does that mean? I mean, that is a pretty significant regional change that could happen tonight. We could wake up tomorrow and discover that all those things have happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big deal, and and nobody's talking about it, and we're going to have to.
2: They are talking about it um, at state um, and on diplomatic terms, and you have seen interestingly that decision to engage with the Venezuelans in terms of um, counterterrorism and counter narcotics in a way that the US hasn't so they're starting to put out the invitation um, anticipating that but no one can quite predict you know the vacuum that'll that'll exist on the Haiti front um, I hope you're right yeah. um, I hope the soft diplomacy model stays in there along uh, with you know defense and everything else as as, as a priority um, I think the Clinton Foundation will remain very much engaged there, um, and that's nothing to, to uh, dismiss in terms of investment, but uh, the idea, I think, that will carry over from Secretary Clinton to Secretary Kerry is the need to also bring in the private sector to, to develop, and both President and Secretary Clinton did that in a big way in Haiti, in trying to, c- trying to come up with some economic incentive to put money to work and create jobs there, that model of um, U.S. business as a door to uh, the other benefits of engaging with America is going to exist in other smaller countries as well now.
1: Another question, right here.
0: Mike Duffin with the State Department. In the past year, if not longer, uh, foreign policy has been politicized. Uh, What impact does that have on the United States moving forward? Thank you. Are you referring to the Susan Rice affair or that whole issue? Congressional hearings where certain people who
1: want to run for president at a later date are asking certain
3: questions (laughs) for. That's That's been been done by (laughs)
1: Warrington.
3: Anybody want to? I'm
0: not up on that. I'm sorry.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The question was how. foreign policy being politicized? Yes. Um, I'm sure it always has been in, in some way. Uh, where you work at the State Department, it's supposed to be nonpartisan, right? Um, I think, uh, and I, I, I don't think that's new, I don't think that ends. I think on the issue that I think you, you have at the front of your mind, as many do, is that of what happened in Benghazi. Um, I think it's very interesting that the State Department has asked for more money to beef up security. They asked for it in 2012 and in 2013, already allocated money, over a billion dollars, that's sitting there in a fund that they can just touch, but Congress has to hand over to them, and that hasn't happened, Um, is unbelievably frustrating, I'm sure, for diplomatic security in the State Department, which already has a pretty thin budget at, what, $51 billion a year. I mean, less than 1% of uh, the federal budget, but on the security front in particular, I know why you're asking that question, um, and I'm surprised it's not more front and center, um, why, why Congress, after having more than 30 hearings on Benghazi, hasn't given more security to the State Department to provide that for their diplomats abroad. I did think it was interesting in the State of the Union last night that the President referenced diplomats abroad, those boots on the ground, along with American servicemen who are serving abroad. That,
1: in my memory, hasn't happened before. Uh, Any more? I I would just like to recognize General Skullcroft sitting on the front row here. General, we're honored to have you, and uh, would you like to?